Hello, and welcome to the Bedrosian Center's Book Club podcast. It's an audio book club where we read and discuss a book every month, sometimes two. We read new and classic works, fiction and non, through a lens of governance to really get what it means to participate in our communities today. My name is Aubrey Hicks. I am the executive director of the Bedrosian Center. And today, we are going to be talking about history and the U.S., the stories that we tell ourselves, the country tells of itself, and how those stories don't match up to actual history. Uh, What can learning about the depth of our history, the truth behind the mythologies, tell us about shaping a future that is just and sustainable for everyone? We are reading Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's Not a Nation of Immigrants. And with me uh, for the first time on the podcast is Yesenia Hunter. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm Yesenia Navarrete Hunter. Um, I am an immigrant to the U.S. from Mexico. I came when I was five years old with my family. Uh, I'm the daughter of Alberto Marquez and Guadalupe Navarrete Marquez. And I'm an assistant professor of history at Heritage University, which sits on and occupies the space of the Yakima uh, Reservation. Uh, So it sits on the traditional lands of the Yakima people that, um, you know, through the Treaty of 1855 um, came to be known as the Yakima Nation, but are actually 14 different tribes and nations. And the Yakima people, just to acknowledge the space that I'm coming from, the Yakima people, care for, have stewarded, and have partnered with the land and the river and the mountain, Mount Bato, that is in this region, and care for their languages and um, their children and their their elders, and are advocates for the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Uh, So that's the space that I'm um, coming in from. And I study um, the Pacific Northwest, and in particular, this region and the entanglements of uh, people, settlers, immigrants, migrants, and indigenous people in the region. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm particularly glad that we read this book and that um, you are here to join us. Um, and not new to the podcast, but uh, I don't know that you've joined us uh, since you started a new center at ASU. <laughs> uh, is Essen. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, my name is Essen Zafar, and I am. Um, uh, I have faculty appointments at Arizona State University's Law School and the School of Social Transformation. And I've also started a newish center. We started in February, so it's about nine, 10 months, called the Difference Engine, where we build products that communities can use to reduce inequality. So we're building a Women's Power and Influence Index, which is kind of like a Yelp for equality, where we rank the power of women at the workplace. We are launching something called uh, Supercharger, which brings the same kind of resources, expertise that for-profit businesses get, such as mentoring and funding and to nonprofits that are working at a grassroots level. So we're also um, changing the way we uh, assess municipal fees and putting them on a sliding scale basis. So people pay a court fee or a parking ticket on the basis of what they make. Um, so it's kind of income regulated. And uh, last but not least, I am also a fellow on inequality at the Bedrosian Center. So I'm always happy to contribute. Uh, 
Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start off today with a very, very, very brief summary of of the book. For those who have not read it, um, I highly suggest you pause and go read it. Um, There's so, so, so much in this book. Um, It covers um, all of U.S. history um, and further back. Um, (laughs) uh, There's a lot in here. Um, this is the, the title, not a nation of immigrants, um, is basically Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz writes this book in order to dispel, uh, the, we are a melting pot nation of immigrants mythology in order that we start to recognize and combat colonial settlerism um, that has perpetuated violence on all of the people for hundreds of years. And uh, she starts off with a really great chapter about um, how the the mythology of a nation of immigrants is relatively recent and in particular very um, deliberate and um, how the very, very popular musical Hamilton also plays into building this mythology and whitewashing uh, settler colonialism. Um, so before I ask you guys um, to join in and, and uh, tell me <laughs> what I have missed in that very short summary, um, I want our listeners to know that um, we are talking about colonial settlerism. So um, there, uh, the trigger warning is that... Um, there is a lot of intense violence that we will be talking about. Um, And I just want you to be aware. Um, So what would you add to my very weird uh, summary of this very large book? I would add that one of the things that Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz does really well in this book is um, to start with a really good definition of settler colonialism. And I think that, I mean, as a scholar, I'm writing about settler colonialism right now. And there's all these questions of whether this framing or this framework um, fits all historical analysis. Like, what are the limitations of settler colonialism as a framework? Can we really analyze American history, all aspects of American history through this framework? And she takes us through every single possible, like, lens of American history. I mean, of course, there's so much in this book. It's such a, you know, deep and broad um, study and really just shows us that, yeah, it fits because this is about settler colonialism and it doesn't, it hasn't expired. It just continues to adjust um, and repair and mend itself in a way that it can move forward with actors, of course, not in this, you know, not without foundation and not without uh, movers that that cause it to shift. Um, but yeah, I think probably the the most uh, one of the things that's really important to me is just to see it defined in a way that shows that it's in the present, it's in the now. Would you add anything, Asin? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add, you know, from my perspective, because I come from the legal or professional kind of, or even you know, social tradition that is in some ways being critiqued in this book. Um, and that is, so I'm an immigrant. 
Um, and this, I don't see this book as a critique of immigrants, obviously, but the narrative that this is a nation of immigrants. And I think the critique, which I actually didn't see this nuance, or maybe I missed it because I didn't finish the entire book, I got to 75%, that that is kind of the preeminent mythos, right? That is perpetuated in popular culture or political culture where it shouldn't be the preeminent. Like just like the American dream is a preeminent economic myth that is perpetuated and it's wholly inaccurate or not wholly inaccurate, that takes away from my proposition, but partially inaccurate to a such an extent that it should be rebutted, right? But the civil rights kind of space, which is where I come from, I'm a civil rights lawyer, is this idea that we should kind of deracialize America, right? So the history, uh, the popular history of like advocacy in America has and remains a quest to deracialize this country. And I think the proposition that she's trying to make is that we still have to and have not decolonized this country, right? And so um, a deracialized kind of society, if we are a deracialized society, which we're not, but uh, a partially deracialized society still remains um, a uh, settler state or a settler society. And so for me, in that context, that's how I was reading. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, one of the things that she talks particularly about in um, one of the later chapters, the chapter on on the border um, is how many immigrants are um, forced to um, assimilate and incorporate the idea uh, and the ideals of settler colonialism uh, in order to Americanize. And that, that indeed Americanization is this form of becoming settler, which is hard to hear. As a settler myself, it is something that um, I think is uh, really uncomfortable and also really important to start bringing into a more mainstream conversation. Um, these are There have been pockets of conversation about decolonization for as long as there have been colonization, um, but not mainstream. And, you know, in particular right now as we're facing, um, you know, what I would say is a tipping point, you know, we could really uh, move forward uh, towards decolonization, towards more equity, um, or we could really um, do some backward moves and uh, embrace the colonialism um, wholeheartedly again. What did you think about the her starting off with Hamilton? Have either of you seen Hamilton? <laughs> No. So I haven't seen Hamilton and I, um, yeah, I haven't seen it because it's, you have to like buy expensive tickets or something, you know, and I just got out of graduate school. Well, I'm still in graduate school, but yeah. Yeah. So there's a, there's a cost thing here. Um, but also I'm not like much for buying tickets for a musical. However, I have many friends who have watched uh, Hamilton and have even gone more than once and have been so enamored uh, with these, um, you know, with the story and the, the, the romanticization of that particular history. 
Um, so I've heard lots about it, but reading <laughs> Roxanne's account of Hamilton just kind of made me really excited <laughs> that I hadn't seen it. <laughs> um, and to just read it from this perspective, I think was really important. And I wanted to like share that chapter with all my friends who have watched Hamilton um, a little bit in a way of like, haha, like, did you know have you read this have you looked at it from this perspective um but I think probably the most important thing from that chapter for me was to really think about the um the possibilities and the use of popular culture you know media to influence the way that we think about our own histories and um you know i I just spoke to somebody a couple of days ago and they they said you know we uh, what we don't have is common memory as Americans is that we don't actually um, see history in the same way. We have, yes, we have multiple histories. We have entangled histories. We have histories that are, you know, overlap and we separate them be, as historians, we separate histories into silos and disciplines. Um, but even in that respect, we don't see these histories in the same light. Um, and so just reading her account of um, the use of this story through popular culture to shape a narrative was really powerful. It's just a wonderful way to enter into her argument. I haven't seen Hamilton either. So, you know, I couldn't, couldn't really comment on, you know, her critique of it um, because I don't know, have any context for what that is. And I'm, to be honest with you, this is like a weird for a lawyer to say and somebody who teaches constitutional law, but I don't remember much about Hamilton himself either. Uh, and I'm not a historian, certainly. Uh, so some of the stuff that she was talking about in terms of his kind of upbringing and, and, and where he came from and how he was adopted, some of that was new to me. Um, I think the thing that was more, um, the thing that I was thinking about when I was reading it wasn't the fact that it was a play because it's just, you know, it's fictionalized and there's liberties that people take. And one of the critiques, one of the individuals that did critique the, uh, the production also talked about the fact that uh, there is certain kind of creative latitude. My, my thing was that the, what I was thinking about is like all of the context around it, right? So for me, when something like this happens, like that's great, you got Hamilton, it's not accurate, but like what's the context around it that we can build now that it's popularized, right? So can we create lesson plans that pull from all of this interest that are accurate? Can we do conversations around uh, that the production is here that can make it better? Can we, and to some extent, I think that burden falls on the people with the most resources and those that are benefiting the most from the production of this this kind of endeavor, which is, uh, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda, right? So, and all the people kind of around it. And so that's what kind of struck me as the more tragic note in the present day context was that we had this out there um, and that this was kind of creating the cultural norm and narrative uh, to Yesenia's point. Um, and all of this, all of this context around it was getting subsumed into the wider narrative. I just want to add something more about the the use of popular culture to kind of create the create these narratives. Is that as an immigrant to the U.S. and growing up here on the Yakima Reservation, I just recall like growing up and and looking to popular culture to help me understand what the national narrative is and how to get closer to it, how to be close to proximity to whiteness and to 
understanding American history. And so in some ways I was, I was pleased to read it. And in other ways, it also kind of makes me think about the harm that, that some of these narratives can create when they, um, you know, reinforce something that's, that's inaccurate. Um, So yeah, I, I just, I just wanted to make that point is that because it is in this popular world um, that it, and I think Roxanne's trying to make that point as well, that it, it's not just like entertainment, that it can actually be harmful in terms of how we understand our histories. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And I was really glad that she talked about it in this way. I was hearing, um, and I'm I'm saying hearing, um, because the way I was reading it in my brain, um, that it was full of righteous anger, <laughs> that particular um some of those particular pieces about Hamilton. And I really felt that was necessary because you're right, Essen, we haven't actually looked at, you know, this is, this is out there in the world. We're all talking about Hamilton and yet we're talking about this fictional Hamilton that we're telling specifically telling young black and Brown people to uh, see themselves in when the real Alexander Hamilton was not someone we really want anybody to see ourselves in if we can help it. And I really also having read a book that she quotes from a lot, which is Viet Thanh Nguyen's Nothing Ever Dies. Now, one of the central parts of that book is a critique of the film Apocalypse Now and how Americans learn about the war, the American war in Vietnam through Apocalypse Now, which mostly erases Vietnamese people. Um, and how much storytelling uh, and narrative needs to be a part, uh, more a part of law education, more a part of public policy education, that we need to have a broader understanding of history and culture in order to recognize where those harms might actually happen um, and how often they happen in something that we uh, can collectively enjoy. I mean, the interesting thing, the other thing I was thinking about is like, you know, it's, there are compelling stories that are more representative and accurate, mm-hmm. right? And part of the fact that we live in systems that encourage playwrights to head to Hamilton, say like, I'm going to make a play about Hamilton. That's because the system, that's the system that he's grown up in or says I've grown up in, right? But there are many, many compelling stories uh, that are interesting and even to some extent, you know, they may be tragic and emotionally devastating, but they may also be entertaining and they may also be, and they're out there, right? Um, and they're more representative, but we, you know, we keep going back to the kind of cultural myths that we grew up with. And instead of kind of finding a new story that's more representative or more accurate or more just, we go with a sequel, right? And we just, it's, it's, what this is, is like, it's, um, it's a new origin story, right? What's the Mm -hmm. word I'm looking for? I live in LA and I can't believe I can't think of it, but when you take the movie and you got to redo it, the prequel, but it's the same sequel, it's the fourth Spider-Man, right? (laughs) It's like the fourth Spider-Man origin story. We've seen this story before, but there's so many other uh, more representative superheroes out there Mm -hmm. uh, that we can talk about. And uh, this will be my plug for anybody who has not seen Reservation Dogs should really see Reservation Dogs. It's fantastic. Um, and contemporary, uh, which is great. Um, 
So I think um, let's get into a little bit about um, the really big themes in the book. So we, we've talked about immigration a little bit. Um, Doom Patrol. Yeah. Doom Patrol. Yeah. Doom Patrol is very representative, I think. I mean, in terms of gender equity, gender norms, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. We're going off topic. Now. I mean, but, you know, I think that, uh, you know, talking about pop culture and how we learn our history, you know, it is mm. really, it's super important, uh, which yeah. is part of the reason why we do this podcast, right? Because I want our policy students to think about how most people um, who aren't policy wonks learn about public policy, learn about the law. I mean, you know, the joke about going on jury duty is that everybody learns about jury duty from, you know, law and order, right? So I want to go into, um, I think one of the important things, I think we could talk a lot about settler colonialism, what it is and white supremacy. I think we can talk a lot about that. I think what I want to do is flip it a little bit and talk about the erasure and exclusion that is um, the basis of white supremacy and settler colonialism. What peoples are is she saying are erased? Well, clearly she's she's um, pointing us to the erasure of indigenous people, and I think that this is where we get stuck a little bit as scholars on when we're trying to define settler colon- colonialism. Um, because Patrick Wolf defined it as the genocide, um, you know, the undoing and the genocide of people. Um, and that's not the only way that, that Wolf defines it, but so many people who address settler colonialism will point to the fact that, you know, like in the 20th century, like, are we really seeing genocide in the late 1900s, you know? It just kind of seems like maybe it wasn't that bad the way that we're taught American history, that it really wasn't as bad as we think it was. And of course, she points us to all of these like multiple examples, but so does her previous book, um, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. I may have stated the title of that book wrong, but um, she points us to those examples as massacres, as moments of genocide. Um, But when we think about, um, and I think, when I say we, I'm thinking of the public, I'm thinking about like your everyday person. And even here living on the Yakima reservation, on li- living in on ceded land of the Yakima people, um, that we, we don't use the word genocide because, well, clearly there's indigenous people still here and it didn't wipe people out. But the way that she defines and looks at settler colonialism as impacting um, people's culture, people's language, uh, structures of family, structures of um, community, um, the way that we are connected to and experience land, um, the way we manage our own resources. um, All of that is under this umbrella of settled colonialism. So um, yeah, I think that's probably one of the most important things for me to think about in terms of it, who the groups of people that she's talking about is being erased. Um, of course, she's pointing to indigenous people. Um, yeah, and there's all these questions of belonging, I think that will be wonderful for us to kind of get into, but I'll, I'll stop there, give um, us on some talking space. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna say much more than that. The, the way I was kind of reading it, because I did, in, um, 
I did learn from and enjoy when she went into a detailed description legal, of the legal definition of genocide. Um, it was a nice pause for my legal brain because all I do when I read, even a book that I agree with, um, like this one, is just try to find chink in the armor of the person who's making an argument. And it's very tough to, that was a nice pause because I was like, okay, this is the legal def accepted definition. Um, you know, when I was reading it, I was thinking more not of genocide as a legal concept, but as a cultural touchstone. And so the idea of kind of social genocide. And again, drawing upon my kind of history, there's often a, this is not nefarious, um, but there's often an attempt to include native uh, peoples um, and kind of lump them in without more as victims of racism, which they certainly may be. Uh, but what that does without acknowledgement of the other whole side of this, of the of kind of the colonialism side of this is that it camouflages this whole idea of settler colonialism. And it, to me, that's kind of a form of social genocide. So that's kind of how I was thinking about it when I was reading some of her writing. Yeah. And I would, I kind of want to add a little bit to that to also say that the erasure is also in the the people who are immigrants because we're because the invitation so this is I guess now I'm like oh I want to talk about belonging the invitation to belonging is really to belong to white supremacy like the closest you can get the closer you can get to whiteness um you know, the more you belong, the, the Americanization, assimilation process is all an invitation to belong into something, even though you sort of never really do fully belong um, or fit, like she um, brings that word into, I think, from um, Viet's word is work as well. Um, but but the, the erasure is also in the complex and like full personhood of immigrants. So you get to belong, but you only can belong if you present in this particular way. And I think that expresses itself the most, expresses itself everywhere, but I think it expresses itself the most when you look at the recent um, challenges of like the Asian American community or not even recent, right? So like a model minority myth is a clear example of this, right? It's kind of the quid pro quo that goes alongside it, right? So I think that's a great point. And how it even, that model minority myth even pits uh, Asian American immigrants against each other uh, in this competition that is Americanization. Yeah. <laughs> um, I uh, appreciate that you uh, really enjoyed the definition of a genocide. <laughs> I like the way you said that. <laughs> um, you know, I think... Yuseni, you got at this, um, which is this um, continuation that we are still settling is really important. We read recently read for the podcast um, a book called The Brutish Museums, not British, Brutish Museums. And it is about, it is a, a museum curator talking about the Benin Bronzes and the violent militaristic colonialism of the British to acquire all of the things that are in museums across the world and how museums 
daily perpetuate that same violence by retelling that story. I think you were talking about rebooting. Was rebooting the word you were looking for earlier, Essen? Reboot, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, clearly, my brain is going all over the place. There's so much in this book. Um, but what I think what, you know, um, I'm going to take a different example from the book. Uh, she talks a lot about um, uh, monoculture and how um, the colonialists, uh, the settlers, took over uh, something that had been a, a sacred plant um, in specific tribes, uh, uh, tobacco and, you know, just used, um, used bodies up to create this monoculture and create this addictive, uh, thing. Um, and now it's still everywhere and we're still doing that. Uh, tobacco is still something that we, um, that is still, um, a monoculture in lots of places. Um, it's still in, you know, uh, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, there's, you know, fields and fields of tobacco. And we're still making, you know, there are still specific elites making money off of that. Um, something that was appropriated from um, a culture and is seemingly very American now. And we sort of miss the whole underlying meaning and how we keep, we just keep doing it over and over and over again. You look like you're going to say something, Yesenia. I'm thinking just about that we're so good at commodifying culture. Yeah, everything, really. Everything. Um, yeah. But even as we think about how we're still colonizing, we're still settling, that there's this, this drive for even as we're thinking about multiculturalism and assimilation and belonging, that it's really what it's, what we're actually saying is what are the pretty things or the good things or the things that can make us money that we can appropriate and highlight. And so it's kind of, mm -hmm. we, we frame it as celebrating diversity or celebrating culture. Um, and that becomes the thing that we turn into monoculture, that it becomes the, the thing that we can commodify mm -hmm. and consume, um, which is way different than celebrating diversity, even though I don't think that's the place that we should go to, but it's even not that. Um, so yeah, when, when you started talking about that, I started thinking about the um, just how consumer culture also is a huge driver and a huge arm or leg or part body part of settler colonialism that continues to um, bring about those reasons to reboot, right? To, to, to rehash Hamilton in a way that we can consume this story or rehash stories, or even think about um, at the, at her very, the, the conclusion, she talks about the, you know, the gift quote unquote gift giving Indian that, um, we are thankful for at Thanksgiving for, you know, providing some nourishment or providing aid uh, without recognizing the genocide and the destruction of languages and, and parts of culture, not all languages, of course, but um, yeah, and I'm just thinking about consumerism and consuming as part of that driver for the reboot. Mm -hmm. And how much, um, capitalism is the now I'm trying to think of a chemistry word that I can't think of is the is the catalyst right for mm -hmm. 
It's a supply chain of commodification. It's like how I think about it, right? Like we, not only do we do, like if you, far be it for me to be a historian, but if you look back uh, historically, like Roman times, they held territory, um, but there was a huge, you know, the, 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 what we call integration of communities was very different, right? So a lot was left up to nominalize local communities, right? As long as they kind of agreed to Roman kind of rule and taxation, what they spoke, how they built, what they bought, what they sold, who cares? And what we've done, I think one of the infamous achievements of this, of our society is that we've not only worked on this commodification of not just native communities, but even immigrants, but we've commodified commodification, right? So then now we export that out to other countries. So you have in India, you have Hindu nationalists that are trying to build the Hindu national state, sometimes through violent means. In neighboring Pakistan, you have the same thing with the Baloch community. You have, you know, and a lot of this didn't exist two, 300 years ago, uh, but it does today, right? So people have leaders and kind of majority communities have learned this American lesson to some extent. You know, I'm not saying it's all America's fault, but I mean, that we are, we are exporting through our kind of economic hegemony, not just the products that people buy, but the way people think about their neighbors and their, their indigenous peoples. And, you know, you can see it all over the world. It's not just in the United States anymore. She talks briefly about, Nazi Germany too. It's very brief, but um, I feel like other there are lots of other <laughs> books that you can read about how the Germans and how Hitler learned from um, American politics, um, how how to genocide. But I also think <laughs> so. I'm feeling very uh, cynical, but there are a lot of lessons to learn in this book about moving forward. Um, I think the biggest one is this notion of, of narrative and, and how we have to confront these myths. Um, and it, is, it does feel particularly important. Um, you know, this book was, you know, in press before the attacks on CRT and um, teaching uh, history that might make white kids uncomfortable um, through what 26 states have already made laws. I don't know how many of them are uh, being challenged. I hope they're all being challenged. Um, but what an important thing, recognizing the mythology in our history uh, and retelling those stories to uh, get at the, the violence at the heart of that in order to learn from. It just feels like that that is the real key to get out of this book. What other things should we look forward to? Um, I do feel like there there is in the conclusion and throughout the book things that we can do to move forward. Well, I'll address it as it relates to my work. This is a question that I've been thinking about and grappling with for the last three or four years now is to really think about what is the impact of settlers and really immigrants um, who, like myself, came as a child, um, not of my own choice. And even when I think and talk to my parents about their choice to come to the United States in 1979, 
um, what that meant, what that reason, you know, what was the, the foundation of that reason really had to do with poverty and looking for new opportunities um, and to think about how to get ahead and really to think about the future of their children. That's and any time that I interview and in oral histories that I've conducted, it's always about um, movement has to do with children, settling has to do with children, um, deciding to um, immigrate to the U.S., whether as immigrants or refugees, has to do with the future of protecting. Um, a lot of times it has to do with, with protecting people's children. Um, and so as a historian that looks at placemaking, I'm really interested in how people use their bodies and recipes and memories and communal knowledge to make place. Um, I've also had to think about what does it mean for people to make place, even if they're uninvited and uh, coming from hostile places or in sometimes even entering into hostile spaces here in the United States, what is that impact on indigenous people? And that question has scared some, uh, some of my readers and uh, people who hear my work because as an immigrant, we don't want to think about um, the fact that we are also partnering with and being part of the settlement and colonial process that harms indigenous people. So that, yeah, so that question is really important to me. And I think that when I... Um, look at this question, I want to keep intention. Like, I don't know if there's a resolution, but there is a lot of tension and just kind of stay in that tension of the beauty of, you know, like my mother's gratitude for being able to come to the United States and feel like she could um, open new doors for her children and the tension of living on the Yakima reservation and knowing that um, there are there's tensions between Latinos uh, on the Acma Reservation and Indigenous people, um, but also understanding that we're part of this larger rhythm that we didn't create, but are still part of it. And so what is the responsibility that we have? So I don't have any answers other than to know that it's something that we need to look at and rather than ignore, um, but understanding this process also for me helps me to resolve some of those tensions of feeling erased. So that whole piece of like, okay, if I can just assimilate, if I can join this crowd and get close enough to it, it also erases many parts of who I am, my language, my culture. And I'll just give you one example. And I know I'm taking up a lot of time. So I apologize, Esan. When I was growing up, my mom wouldn't didn't want us to wear a lot of bright colors and she would say if you wear a lot of bright colors then you look more Mexican so let's like tone it down and so it was it really didn't it took me a long time before I realized why I love to wear really bright colors and anything I buy is like, the brightest red or the brightest blue or you know and when I think about that I think about her trying to silence any race in order to protect us, not as a way to like, okay, let's not be Mexican anymore, but like, okay, calm that part down of who you are. So the erasure is, is very real. And it's, it's um, at the cost of our full personhood, I think. Um, so I think it's a really important um, question for us to examine, like, what is the responsibility that we have 
uh, at, you know, being immigrants and um, how do we like partner with indigenous people and advocate for their, you know, in their decolonial process and understanding their needs and their desires for the future of their children. Um, so when I think about, I don't know if she gives us an answer in the book, <laughs> this is what we should do, this is what we should be doing, but it certainly points to a lot of the realities that immigrants and migrants face as they're entering into spaces. And I should also note that when immigrants are entering into these spaces and feeling the demands of assimilation and Americanization, there is no thought for the other or for the us. There's really only a thought for how do I get ahead and how do I uh, escape this poverty? So there's responsibility there that needs to be grappled with, but there's also something else that we haven't quite gotten to. I mean, that's part of the conundrum of, of white supremacy is this idea of individualism that sort of denies that communal uh, aspect. And even though it's celebrated, this individualism is, is celebrated. I mean, that's, um, we hear it about masks and we hear it, you know, about um, guns and we hear it about um, whatever music you want to listen to. Um, it really does, you know, sort of um, pervade culture and yet um, not too individualistic. You do have to assimilate. You know, and where where those lines are, um, most white people wouldn't be able to tell you. But I think a lot of immigrants um, would be able to tell you <laughs> right away where the, some of those lines are. The only thing I would add to that question or that you raised kind of was like, you know, what do I where do I come from as a as a you know as a technical immigrant, technically defined immigrant, you know, and I would say, and I didn't read till the end, so I don't know if she does offer, doesn't seem like she does offer any kind of, and I'm all about kind of practical outputs that arise out of like, so I've read this, okay, so what, right? So for me, the so what would be, you know, what ind individual intervention can I bring and interdiction can I bring or disruption can I bring into my life and how can I disrupt the narrative that's happening outdoors, right? So one thing that would I would try to work on is, um, changing my internal narrative. So one thing we did in my, as an example of this is like, you know, the, the power of the words that you use repetitively over time. So the aggregation of marginal gains, right? So one of the things we did in my last kind of last role that I held in the government was you had, you know, worked a lot on um, terrorism and the term that we used for terrorists that had some connection to Islam, for instance, or they presume to be Muslim or representing that religion, is we, we the government or the media would call them jihadists. Jihadists, 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 all the time. You still probably hear it in some context. The word jihad in Arabic means struggle, but there's also a religious connotation, right? And so when I call an ISIS fighter, an Al-Qaeda fighter, a jihadist, what I'm doing is I'm, give, I'm calling them exactly what they want to be called because I'm lending credence and I'm, I'm, I'm giving them uh, legitimacy because they want to be known. 99% of the people that they're communicating to do not agree 
that they are on some kind of holy struggle. But if the U.S. media and the U.S. government is calling them that, they're like, great. That's exactly what we want to be known as. So we did a lot of work to start using more accurate terms that were representative, that applied to not just the 19% of terrorist actions that were perpetuated by ISIS or Al-Qaeda, but the 80% that were domestic terrorists, which we didn't give a lot of attention to, and now look what's happened. But um, So we use words like violent extremism, right? Just far more accurate and divorced from any kind of identity politics, right? So part of what I would do after reading this is, you know, how can I talk about nation of immigrants, right? How can I add terms related to settler colonialism in my discourse, not just with people like the three of us who study and think about these issues, but with the average American person to whom these terms would be coming out of left field. But if we start integrating those terms in our daily discourse and the way we think about them internally, you know, even as an appendation, if we're just appending stuff and we're doing that, I think that's, so for me, that's my homework after reading the book, right? Is how do I, when I, when, how do I catch myself when I listen to or I'm hearing we are a nation of immigrants? Are we, we are not just a nation of immigrants or we are immigrants, but we are also a nation that has a history rooted in settler colonialism. We're continuing to perpetuate some of those ills, right? So how do I, how do I add those disclaimers to my conversation and my thinking? So that's what I would do. And one thing I will say, I did find a, um, there's a reason why this came up in my mind, is I found kind of a paragraph where she talked about what I was talking about before, about exporting you know, this, these ideas kind of commodif- commoditizing commodification. And so she says, I don't know if this is a direct quote because I copied it down, but as I was listening to it, but, um, this is a chief characteristic of US nationalism and it is similar to other settler states such as Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Northern Ireland, copycat states such as Israel, now defunct Afrikaner apartheid regime in South Africa, but only the US has become an unparalleled capitalist state military machine. Unlike those other states whose damage, damaging as it is, remains mostly local or regional, the U.S. rules the seas, skies, with the futures of humanity and Earth itself at stake. She says it much better than kind of what I was, right? So it's like the impact is far in excess. And she doesn't talk about the economic power that the U.S. wields, but um, anyway. I feel like we need to sit with that for a bit because, um, you know, in so many ways, that is the... American exceptionalism, and yet the consequences are the opposite of what I think most people mean when they say American exceptionalism. There's the section that she's talking about. Um, I think it's the section that you haven't gotten to yet, Essen, is the section on borders, and she's talking about um, particularly the U.S. involvement in Central America over the last, you know, since Reagan, although before that too, but since Reagan and um, how much that is tied to um, much of the refugee crisis. Um, She also talks about um, how many refugees there are in relation to climate change, which is also has been driven by U.S. colonialism. There's just so much in this book to talk about. Um, One thing we haven't touched on – I was talking to someone new to California the other day um, who 
did not realize that California used to be part of Mexico. Um, and there is the section um, that she's talking about the this notion of of dual colonialism, dual um, settler colonialism, where um, the indigenous folks in the area, you know, have had this history of of first the Spanish. <laughs> And then the U.S. and, you know, how far back that history goes um, and how so much of that has been lost in this sort of rebooting, this this mythologizing of, of what um, Manifest Destiny and what America is. Um, and that those conflicts are still ongoing, that there are actual cases where uh, descendants of the Spanish colonialists would like land back um and that does so (laughs) there's a lot there um i think one of the hard things for me listening to this is just the sense of not only ongoingness but the deep-seatedness of all this that it's been going on for so long and the idea that ancestors of Spanish colonialists would like to take land back that was somebody else's land in the first place. This idea of how do you both address wrongs while moving forward? And I think you got that. You, you got at that question, you know, a lot, Yesenia, in your work. Um, and it's, it feels um, particularly hard um, and I think this gets at what you're saying, Essen, uh, when we don't all speak the same language about our history. I don't have a question for that. Can I expand a little bit on it, though? Yes. Um, I When I first started thinking about uh, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans specifically as settlers and asking this question of the impact that this group of immigrants has had on Indigenous people, I came across an article by Laura Polito, and I can't remember the um, the title of the article now, but in it, she discusses the Chicano as uh, participating as a settler colonialist. And there's, I've had, I've gone back to the article so many times because the first time I read it, I was like, that doesn't sound right. And then I went back to it again. I'm like, let me look at it again, uh, trying to separate, you know, uh, feelings of responsibility. And I think that that's what everyone should be doing when we read about our histories and histories can make us uncomfortable. Uh, they can make us proud. They can make us feel all kinds of stuff, but really um, they're not there to serve us. <laughs> Their histories are, are there to, so that we can understand our place in um, the way I like to think about it is to think about our place as future ancestors. And I get that term from uh, Layla Saeed who writes about being good ancestors, right? So not only our place in the world, but our place in time as well. Um, so going back to uh, Laura Polito's work on this, in this article about Chicanos as, um, as settlers and actually participating in settler colonialism, I really like how Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz also gets to that when she talks in this short section on, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. And that conversation of, um, she also addresses it with the Irish, with the, you know, this, this desire to, um, 
to become, to self-indigenize, to put ourselves in place and time um, that we haven't really quite been a part of. And so, especially because I'm living in Washington state, which is which has never been occupied by the Spanish or Mexico, and so that that slogan has never fit my narrative. <laughs> so I've always had to again kind of come back to that, like what does it mean? Because I am actually in this place. It's not like my family has this history in California, and we are Californios, and then the border crossed us. That narrative doesn't quite fit, and it doesn't fit all um, people of Mexican and Mexican heritage. And certainly doesn't fit the, the the narrative of immigrants from other parts of um, Latin and Central America. So um, I think that ha- that that's a conversation we haven't had in public spaces. We've had it, I think, in these very small circles. Um, again, this really short article, it's in here, but I haven't seen a lot of people talk about this. And one of the things that I really appreciate, appreciate about this book is that... Um, even though it's so big, um, it's such a dense, big, heavy book. It really is written for the public, in my mind. It is very, to kind of go back to consumerism, it is very consumable. Uh, You can sit down and read through this and understand because she's weaving together um, bits and pieces of stories that we already know. We know the story of Hamilton, at least in some ways, and she's bringing us to that place. We know the stories of, you know, um, people in Appalachia, and she's bringing diff- a different light to kind of turn the people into these more complex personhood and stories that we can understand. So, yeah, they're definitely, it's definitely something that we haven't talked about enough in um, public spaces. And I think uh, that this book could really be an entry point into that. I'm so glad you said that. I, uh, I really agree because, um, you know, very early on, she also brings in, you know, um, a book slash movie that's been um, talked about endlessly, Hillbilly Elegy, um, which we've talked about on this podcast. And we also had to talk about the the film on the film podcast because um, it has been this cultural touch point. Um, but, um, on page 44, my book says burn really big because, um, (laughs) she's, she's very judgy of J.D. Vance and I was like, yes, um, I can't help it. I'm, everybody who has listened to this podcast knows that, um, I really dislike Hillbilly Elegy. Um, so, um, that she does bring in those popular, uh, culture touch points, um, as well as um, these sort of, they're not, she's not uncovering history, <laughs> but she's connecting dots where we try not to connect those dots. Um, and there's definitely, you know, um, a part where she's talking about, um, I think I wrote it down somewhere too. The United States has never been a nation of immigrants. It has always been a settler state with a core of descendants from the original colonial settlers. That is primarily Anglo-Saxon, Scots-Irish, and German. And um, if you add Italian, that is my background. <laughs> um, I think most of us, yeah. <laughs> and I'm laughing, you know, um, you know, she's talking about how the, the self-indigeneity um, where people would take the story of Daniel Boone. And I was thinking about my family saying, 
you know, that they were related to Daniel Boone and um, my family saying that uh, we had, you know, a Navajo woman as my great great grandmother, but nobody could remember her name or anything, you know. Um, yes, I think how important it is to um, speak about these things more publicly. Essen, you look like you were going to say something, or are you just laughing at me? No, I was just laughing. <laughs> um, I'm listening. <laughs> Yeah, Yesenia, I, I think that that is um, true. This is a, a readable book, even though it is also very dense. It's readable and emotional as well. I mean, I think in reading this, you get the sense that that uh, Roxanne is not happy with the state of cultural discourse on history right now. There is this sense of of righteous anger that we keep rewriting this story covering up all of this violence. Um, the hope that I get from reading this book, you, you didn't ask that question, but it just kind of brings this up for me is that, um, you know, when I think about advocating for um, Black lives and standing with neighbors who are advocating for Black Lives Matter, the, the hope of that is that when Black people are not being gunned down by police, that brown people aren't being gunned down by police. So our liberation is tied together, right? And so when I think about um, this righteous anger that you, that you feel as you're reading Roxanne's words, is that this, if we can get to like the core of what's happening here, the, the, the colonization, the, the erasure of indigenous people, then we'll understand more fully and provide um, ways of belonging that really invite people in all of, uh, invite people for, for all of who they are. So like, I don't have to be invited in with dulled down colors and losing my language, my native language, um, when I become part of my neighbors, when I become part of who we are as a country or my own children can, I, I can feel comfortable teaching them their Spanish language and practice our, our, our practices, our cultural practices, our healing practices without having to dull those down. So when I think about like the way that, um, the reason why this work is so important is not just to expose um, the violence, which the violence needs to be exposed and the histories need to be told. And we need to have a common language as um, Mark Charles says in um, Unsettling Truths. But the, the hope for me is that this isn't just um, for decolonizing indigenous people, um, but it's also for um, the invitation of full personhood for people of all backgrounds. So yeah, that's what I'm, when I read this, I'm like, okay, this, this is an impact, not, not just on indigenous people, but on my life as well, if we think about this carefully. And that is something that I think um, we should say over and over again, that, that liberation is, that our, all of our liberation is tied together. That's beautiful. Is there something that we, um, that you want to talk about that we haven't yet talked about? An idea that she brings up, uh, a people, I mean, um, I know one of the words that she uses um, is arrivance. I, I, I did not listen to the podcast, so I'm hoping I've never heard that word out loud. Arrivance? Yeah, that's how she pronounces it. 
And it's from it's from somebody else. I can't remember who she cites. Jody Bird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Transit of Empire, I think, is the name of her Jody Bird's book. Oh, what a cool name for a book. Yeah. I was going to say that um, this actually gets to your point, Isan, that we should really think about um, the language and the words that we use. And maybe even more so to the point of, you know, what do I do with this? How do I add the language that's necessary even in everyday, like, common conversations? Yeah, is to really think about what words to use. I, I, she's pulling on, she's pulling on, you know, Jody Bird's work on arrivance because um, you can't say that like people of African descent are immigrants. Uh, you can't just erase that part of history, and we do that when we, when you, when we use the word immigrant. So arrivance is a way to get at that. Uh, refugees is another word. So it's also a question you know, in the scholarly world is like, what is the right terminology for the groups of people that we're, we're writing about, you know? So anyways, go ahead. I was gonna say, particularly when um, language can so often and has been so often used to cover up the violence. Um, So, you know, instead of saying refugees or migrants or immigrants that you would say illegal, right? That, um, even though there is no real legality, right? I was going to say we do it all the time, right? I mean, like they're not illegal immigrants, not even legally are they illegal immigrants because they it's not illegal to be, but beyond the fact that they're not illegal immigrants, we say undocumented immigrants, right? In any other country, they would be refugees. Right, right. But they're refugees. But we choose actively, irrespective of what political side you're on, to ignore that connotation. They, you know, 90% of the people, this is a rough estimate, but I've worked at the border for a long time and worked on these issues that are trying to get into this country, especially today. We're not living 30 years ago. Are not thinking to come here and just like work and send money back. I mean, these are families with kids. They're refugees, they're fleeing violence or climate change or all kinds of other stuff. And we continue to use that terminology. Part of it is driven by this kind of national myth of the immigrant that she talks about. Um, And part of it is driven by, you know, ideas of settler colonialism or um, white supremacy, so on and so forth. The other coming into this country, the other brown person coming into this country. Meanwhile, we have 60% Actual illegal, actual undocumented immigrants are the 60% of folks, most of whom are of European descent, who are here in this country without actual documents, who are not seeking refuge, who came here as students or came here to work and decided not to leave. And that's the bulk of people that are in. So we use like these terms. We, we do this all the time. <laughs> right. And so, sorry, this is not meant to be a theme about the words we use because that's uh, where I think my commentary is going. No, but I think, I mean, I think that that is is one of the things to to come away from this this history is that we need to rethink the the common myth and tell it as it actually is. And I think uh, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz would say at least if if we were pairing this book with with the earlier one that she wrote, uh, that is the point that she drives home, which is we keep calling these wars, but these are massacres. We call these yeah. So so she's very much along the same line that one of the ways that we change this is to really 
um, think about the rhetoric that we um, perpetuate with language. So, yeah, I think that's a great place for this conversation to go because I think that's important. And, you know, just to beat a dead horse, that's a terrible thing to say. I don't know what other, I don't even know where it comes from. It's awful. Um, see, language, it's, it's <laughs> awful, but um, war on a war on terror and a war on poverty and we have a war on drugs and, and you know, our police are warring with our neighbors. Uh, when we when we call protesters rioters, right. you know, there is a lot about how we tell the story um, that is important. And it's also important to think about, you know, our pop culture and, you know, what mythologies is it rebooting? What um, mythologies just keep getting perpetuated, even unknowingly, and to really think about our language. I think that's one so what to take out of the book, as it were, Essen. I think it's a, a lot of what we talk about on this podcast, too, um, that the way we tell our story and who gets to tell the story is really important. And we need to make sure that this is the story that we start to tell more often. Um, this question, I think, is a hard question. Um, did you like the book? I loved the book. I love Roxanne's very approachable writing. I know I said that this could be consumed by the public. I don't know if a lot of people in the public would sit down with this length of a book, but certainly once you get into chapter one and you hear this righteous anger that's kind of underlying the story and and wanting to correct um, our view of history, I think is so evident just just from the get-go. Um, and the way that she braids the stories together to me is really powerful. Um, and, you know, I looked in the back of the book just now because I wasn't actually sure if there was uh, primary research done to pull the book together. Um, there's certainly like so much, um, so many secondary sources, you know, sources that I've read that people have heard of before that she really brings together to tell this story. Um, I think she does it in just such a powerful way. Um, so yeah, I love the book. Loved it, loved it. Who should read it? I think one of the questions I ask myself all the time when I read a book is whether I would assign it in a class. Um, I think everybody should read it. I think Chicanos and people like myself, immigrants, um, Mexican-Americans, people of different backgrounds should read this book um, because one of the things that we may not recognize is the project that we're being being invited into. And this really exposes a lot of that. And um, also it really helps me, helps to prompt me to think about what should I do? What can I do next? Essen, did you like the book? Uh, yeah. Uh, my only critique would be that I thought it was, um, I think it was too broad. Uh, and for me, that made it a little unfocused. Well, not for me, because I mean, I've, I've read some of this material before and studied it and wrote about it and things like that, signed it in class. But it was it was a lot. It was a lot of material that jumped. And so I would have liked to have her gone a little bit deeper. Uh, so she glossed over something. And I know maybe that wasn't the purpose of the book. So that's just my personal selfish desire. But that's kind of what I would have liked to see because my like legal mind was like always whenever she would say something I was like well but that's not and I know part of me is thinking that is the case but part of me was like well 
is that how we would define it though? But is that how we would like, I mean, I don't know. And so I would have loved to kind of get a little bit, um, there were parts of it which I where I agreed with her substantively, but she she assumed that the reader would just kind of agree and move along to the next point. And so I would have liked to see a little bit more, a little attempt made uh, for a book that was designed for the general public, a little bit more of an attempt made to sit with that a top a, a particular topic, like she did with Hamilton. So kind of she did that, right, when she talked about that. Um, so that would be my only thing. And in terms of who should read it, uh, I would want speechwriters to read this book. So political speechwriters should read this book. That would be a specific audience. I mean, generally, people should read it. But I think uh, people who write the speeches that that are one element of kind of the perpetuation of our cultural mythos should read it. So. You know, I, I sort of agree with you, Essen, that it is there. there's a lot in this book. I actually think it would lend itself really well being made into a documentary series. And I would love to see a project like that come come out of it. Um, because I also think there's a lot of things in here that could be told really well in a, in a visual medium as well. Um, I did not listen to the audiobook. Would you guys recommend the audiobook? That's um, insane, not really, because of the voices. Yeah, the only problem I had with the audiobook is for some reason the narrator chooses to, when he is uh, quoting somebody, like Donald Trump or Obama, he decides to mimic their voice, but he's not a good mimic voice mimicker, voice actor. And so it really takes you out because it's a bad accent, whoever he's talking about. Um, it kind of st- takes me out of the what I'm reading and I'm like chuckling or cringing based on kind of what he's doing. So they're just not good. So he's not, it doesn't strike me as somebody who's kind of a Broadway trained voice actor who can do accents and things like that. So that was the only reason. But otherwise, as a rule, I think audio, I, I mean, I'm an audio person, but uh, otherwise it was fine. That was my only kind of critique. Yesenia, did, did you, what would you say about the audiobook? Um, I would agree with Esan. I appreciate it though, that it is an audio. Yeah. Um, because I sat down to start reading it and I thought, oh, this is wonderful, but I'm taking way too many notes. <laughs> I just need to get through it. Um, so getting it on audio and putting it on a fast forward speed, mm-hmm. which is usually what I do. And it also makes those fake same, voices yeah, sound even same. worse. Yeah. I read it really fast. <laughs> I literally laughed out loud earlier and I thought, Oh, this isn't the way the book is intended. It's not made to make you laugh, but, um, but yeah, anytime you can get an audiobook, that's wonderful. But yes, uh, agree on the voice, the weird cringy voice situation. Yeah. In terms of, of accessibility and also the time that we all have to uh, devote to things like this, yeah, I'm so glad that it's an audiobook. I um, I think this is also a book that you can read a chapter and put it down for a while and come back and read another chapter because she does continue the themes and you don't necessarily have to read them all in one sitting, right? I really wish that academic administrators would read this. I feel like that's always my answer. <laughs> like, I really think, you know, the university perpetuates a lot of this. Um, Talking, you know. that they, that's what you think. No, I don't think <laughs> that. <laughs> Surprising, huh? 
Yeah. And, you know, I think it would be great if particularly local leaders, uh, mayors, city council members uh, would read this and maybe inspire them to read more um, and learn more about local history in order to talk about it would be great. I also think this would be a really fun book, fun book, a really good book to use for like a, a freshman all read. There's so much in this and I think you could pair off into lots of groups and have really interesting conversations. Um, we've just touched on a few of the things in this book. It's um, very dense. So I think that is all, unless there's something, one more thing that you would like to say about the book. Otherwise, I am so glad that we got to, to talk a little bit about it. There's just so, so, so much. <laughs> I really loved it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, and thank you for taking the time to to read this um, for this and, and having this conversation. And um, if you learn about things that we should be using in our everyday language, let's let's keep doing it. Will do. Thank you again, Aubrey. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you uh, for inviting. And also, it was really nice to meet you, uh, the both of you. So yes, the, yes, I'm so glad. I wish I had known you <laughs> while you were at USC. All right, that's all we have time for today. Thank you again to our guests. Thank you to our listeners. We always appreciate you. And we would love if you want to tell your friends and leave a review. To find links to uh, some of the books and articles that we talked about today, um, check out the show page, bedrosian.usc.edu slash book club, all one word. And uh, we will come back again in another month. Um, and before I go, thank you to my co-producer, Jonathan Schwartz, and of course, our sound supervisors, the Brothers Hedden. Thank you so much.